This morning we're going to be talking about church discipline, gaining your brother. Church discipline, gaining your brother. Before we do, let's pray together. Father, I just pray that you would help us now to receive your word, to love it, to embrace it, to cherish it, to honor it, Lord, um, even when it's difficult and even when it's contrary to our culture, Lord. I pray that you would help us, Lord, as a people, help us, Lord, as a church, be holy, God, as you are holy. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to talk about church discipline, gaining your brother. This is one of the reasons why I preach through books of the Bible, because no pastor wakes up in the morning and says, I want to preach on church discipline today. When you preach through books of the Bible, you, it's, you can't just pick and choose your favorite passages. You can't just skirt around difficult things you have to reckon with what god has spoken and this is a difficult topic we live in a culture and it's quite remarkable but we we live in a culture where it seems like the only sin is believing that there is such a thing as sin think about it about the only sin in our culture is believing that there is such a thing as sin the only sin, the only thing that's really considered sinful or terrible today is, is judging somebody else or, or considering that something else that someone else does is wrong. That's remarkable, striking. But it, it still shows you, though, that no matter how much people try, they cannot get around morality. Everybody still thinks there is such a thing as right and wrong, that there is something that is objectively wrong, even if that one thing that is wrong is thinking other people are wrong. You just can't get around morality. That there is right, that there is wrong. But contrary to the world, we know that there is sin, and that sin is deadly in its consequences. We talked about that last week at great depth. And so the next question is, how do we deal with that within the context of the church? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. As we talk about church discipline, gaining your brother. If you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bound on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. The Word of God. You may be seated. We're going to explore this topic under two headings. The process and the prerogative. The process 
and the prerogative. First, we have the process, the process of church discipline. So, as we talked about last time, this is Jesus' fourth and next-to-last discourse within the book of Matthew that most commentators agree is broken up into five discourses or, or teaching sections separated by, by narrative or story sections, okay? And we talked about how it makes sense that um, Matthew would organize it this way because as, as Jesus is making his final approach to Jerusalem before his crucifixion, and he has now began warning his disciples that the Son of Man must uh, be handed over to the authorities and be crucified and then on the third day rise, right? And so they didn't understand what he's saying. They, they don't really have a concept for a crucified Messiah. How, does that, how could that even work, okay? But Jesus is beginning to prepare them for the day when he would not be there. But his community, his followers, his disciples would live on beyond him and they would need to know, they would need to know how they are to live and act and behave and to carry on without the physical presence of Christ in their midst. So we talked about last time how in, as Jesus is addressing his disciples and how they are to live together in Christian community, he addresses first the issue of pride, right? You know, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And he says, no, if you're going to be in my kingdom and part of my community, you're going to be those who serve one another, who seek not to, to be served, but to serve and, and, and give your lives as Christ did for us. It, 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 means, you're going to, it means you're going to care about, about sin. You're going, to, you're going to be concerned about it. You're going to receive the, the, the least of those within our, the, the Christian community. You're going to be careful to... If necessary, deny your own self, deny your, yourself even privileges and freedom that you might have if that means that you're not going to put a stumbling block in front of somebody else. It means you're going to take your own sin seriously to the point where you're going to take drastic action if necessary to cut sin out of your life. Even when other people think it's crazy or it doesn't make sense, but you but you are willing to do that because you realize it's better to go into heaven maimed than go into hell whole. Yes. And then the, the last week, we kind of wrapped that section up with the parable of the lost sheep. And this is a, it's a great parable. It's many, it's, uh, many people's, uh, one of their favorite passages, including my own, because we can all relate to that sheep. That sheep who wanders and, and the, the, the shepherd will leave the 99 to go just find that one sheep who has went astray. And it's, it's in this context that Jesus begins to talk about what we call today church discipline. But, the par- but, but I just don't want you to miss the significance of the fact that this comes immediately after the parable of the lost sheep, right? Every, pe- people love the parable of the lost sheep. We love the fact that God comes looking for us when we wander, right? Don't you love that? But let me ask you a question. How does God do that? Through people. 
You see, people love the parable of the lost sheep, but they don't like church discipline. And they don't realize that the parable of the lost sheep is about church discipline. How does God come looking for you when you're wandering away from him in sin? He sends people from the church to you. That's how he goes after lost sheep. So you can't love the parable of the lost sheep without loving church discipline. If you want God to come after you in your sin when you wander from him and thank God that he does, well, guess what? He's going to use people to do it. That's the context in which we must understand church discipline. That's how God comes after his wayward sheep. That's how God leaves the 99 to find the one. And so we have this process here. This process by which Jesus is teaching that he goes and uses his church to find wayward sheep. And again, remember the goal. The goal is always restoration. Always restoration. The goal is not to beat anybody up. The goal is not to condemn anybody to hell. The goal is to save souls. That's why it's so important. So as we look at this process, we see it's remarkably simple. It's not complicated. Number one of the process is this. If a brother or sister sins against you or is found in some kind of known sin, personally and privately address it. Okay? So you, you address it privately. You address it personally. Okay? This is the first and most important step in finding wandering sheep. If a sin has directly involved you in some way or has wronged you in some way, or if there's some kind of manifest sin, okay, you go and you address it privately. The first thing you do is go directly privately to the person and talk about it. That's it. 99% of human conflict would immediately evaporate if people followed this one rule. Don't tell so-and-so about it. Don't tell your neighbor about it. Don't tell your best friend about it. Don't say a word. If you have a problem or an issue with somebody, I challenge you by the Spirit of Christ and by the Word of God, before you complain to a single soul about it, don't say a word until you've spoken directly to that person. If we did that, just about every problem in our lives, in our relationships would evaporate. 99%, I made that up, but 99% of all conflicts would be resolved. I believe that would be resolved immediately if people did this one thing. Before you say a single word, if you have an issue, just talk with them privately about it. Sometimes this person might not even realize that they've wronged you or that they're doing something wrong. And you go to talk about it and you, and you work it out. Sometimes it's just a simple misunderstanding. Sometimes it's just a miscommunication. Married folks, you, you ever miscommunicated with your spouse? My goodness. Right? Sometimes, sometimes you say white and they hear black. That's just reality. It doesn't mean that, that something's terribly wrong. It doesn't mean somebody's trying to intentionally hurt you. Sometimes you just need to talk and have a conversation. Many things are just simple misunderstandings, miscommunications. Many co- who knows how many conflicts have been totally blown out of proportion, way more than necessary, because, people, because we go blabber our mouths about them. 
So what do you do? You go privately. And you, go, and, you, and you just deal with it and you address it. Now, maybe you see somebody and this person is, is in what seems to you obvious sin. And you, you have a relationship with this person. You have this, you, and so you have an opportunity to say, hey, they're going down this, this path and I'm going to say something to them about it. So you go to them privately and you say something to them about it. And again, most of the time, Lord willing, by God's grace, that's going to deal with the issue. And you can go to them and you can say, hey, is everything okay? I've been seeing this go on in your life and I just want to know, is, is everything okay? Is, is, there, is there something I, you know, there's something I can do? Is there some way I can help you? You know that this path that you seem to be walking down, that, that's a dangerous road. And you can tell them that. And you should tell them that. Because why? Because you'd want somebody to do that for you. Don't you? I mean... Yes, it's hard in the moment because I know it's so hard in the moment. But my goodness, some of you, can't you look back over your life about some of the decisions you made? And don't you just think, my God, I wish somebody would have said something. That was a fool. Why? I know other people had to see how foolish that was. Why didn't somebody just say something? So we have the opportunity to just love people enough to say something. What are we doing? We're seeking wandering sheep. And that's hard today, right? Because we live in a culture that says, well, my business is my business. And of course, there's some truth to that. There's a proverb about that, you know, don't, 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 don't grab a growling dog while it's walking by. I mean, like, you know, there's, a, there's some truth to that. But at the same time, that's just, that's just not how we function as a church. And I'll tell you why. And some of you know what I'm talking about. If someone in a family has a problem. The whole family has a problem. Amen. It's not just the person's problem. Because in a family, one member's problem is the whole family's problem. And that's how it works. And we know that this is what he means. Because what does he say there in verse 15? If your brother... Sins against you. Your brother, your sister in Christ, the family of God. We are the family of God. So, in the family of God, one member of the family's problem is everybody's problem. That's why, that's why he calls each other brothers and sisters and family members. Because Christ is creating a new family, a new people, a new, a new community, a new humanity who is being recreated by the Spirit of God, back being restored from the fallen image of God that has been marred by sin. And so we have to take up, like we talked about last time, we had to retake up that mantle that sin tempts us to, 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 to drop off, and that is that we are our brother's keeper. So step number one from Jesus in Dealing with sin is private addressing of the matter, one-to-one. The vast majority of issues can be taken care of this way. But sometimes, that's not the case. And so that takes us to the second step. And the second step is take one or two others along with you to address the problem. Take one or two others along with you to address the problem. And so, if you go personally and privately to a person, 
okay, and um, they seem hardened or indifferent to what's going on, then at that point, according to Jesus, you are justified in bringing one or two other people along so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, he says. And in that case, it, it, it seems to be, uh, he's not talking about witness to the actual, to the sin per se, probably, because uh, that's already taken place, or uh, unless it's a habit or something like that. But what he's saying is that you're bringing two or three along people to confirm, to confirm what's taking place. In other words, you know, my perspective on an issue may be skewed, okay? And so if I bring one or two other mature Christian along, not one or two other people whom I've already kind of spoken to and gotten on my side about this issue, but one or two objective mature believers who can bring an outside perspective to bear on the situation, to hear both sides of the story, and to give a sober judgment about what's taking place. And when that happens, that may, it, may, it may come about and say, okay, well, maybe you were just blown out of proportion. Okay? Or, if it is serious, they'll be able to say, okay, it's serious. And then, then the those two or three people will then give a little bit more accountability to the person saying, no, I think this person is right here, friend, and this, this is a dangerous path that you're walking down. And the point is what? The point is always to, to restore, right? It's to restore. It's to gain your brother. That's what, it, that's what it says right there. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. We're not trying to lose anybody, right? We don't want, we don't want to lose a sheep, we're trying to gain them back. And so we go and we try to gain them back. So that hopefully that person will repent and come back. Okay? And so in, in the rare case where this matter has been examined and confirmed by one or two other people and the person is, is hard-hearted in that regard, it's only in that very rare case does the matter get brought before the whole church. Before we move on and talk about that, though, it's just worth noting that <clears throat> we just need to be clear, okay, in our love for people and, and clear about this. <clears throat> and so, yeah, this it's hard to do. We just, we just, we got to just ask God to help us and to take courage to do it because this is so uncommon in our culture. And it used to not, it used to not be that way, right? It, 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 churches in time past, at least in the Baptist churches, you know, a hundred years ago, I mean, I had to read a book in seminary. <laughs> this might blow your mind, but they did, the church disciplined the guy for his belt buckle because it seemed too like an ostentatious show of wealth to them. And that might sound crazy to us. That may sound absolutely crazy to us, but Remember what James said about people who show up in wealthy clothing and get the best spots and everything like that? It's, it's possible that somebody could be so ostentatious in their display of wealth that, and kind of braggardly about it that someone needs to take that person aside and say, hey, what's going on? The point is, is, that, is that in times past, this hasn't been such an issue. And so we need to, we need to be willing to go after lost sheep. You need to be willing to go after lost sheep. Okay? And the person you bring with you should be a mature Christian. 
Okay. And in the rare and sad case where the situation results in a the brother or sister hardening their heart, it says, then you tell it to the church. Why? Uh, why do you tell it to the church? Well, it says that if he refuses Eva to listen even to the church, let him beat you as a Gentile tax collector. So, so the point is, is he's, hopefully they'll listen to you privately. Then hopefully they'll listen to you two or three. Then last step is hopefully they'll listen to the church. The goal in every case is what? That they'll listen, right? That they'll listen, that they'll be restored. We'll be pursuing the same goal all along, Okay. Because we don't want the we don't want that person to fall under the wrath and the condemnation of God, right? So that's the fear. The person who is unrepentant and continues unrepentantly in sin and refuses to listen even to the congregation of God, th- that person is risking proving that they were never a true Christian. That's a very dangerous situation to be. That's why church discipline exists because Jesus didn't expect Jesus didn't expect us to get it right all the time. That means just because the church baptized you and put you on the membership roll doesn't guarantee that you're saved. That's why church discipline exists because Jesus knew we wouldn't always get it right. That some people who weren't truly converted would slip in, but eventually they would show themselves by living in unrepentant sin. But then at that point, the church had the responsibility to deal with it. That's what it says there in 1 John 2.19. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it may have become plain to all that they are not of us. But we don't want that to happen, right? We don't want people to go out from us. We want them to be part of us, but... We have this responsibility, this uh, call of church discipline to protect the flock and to protect the sheep. And this is what it says there in James 5.19. And I think all church discipline must be viewed under the lens of James 5.19 and 20. It says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. And will cover a multitude of sins. So what this is saying is something utterly uncontrary to the world. But it's what the Bible teaches. And that is addressing lovingly, humbly, addressing sin in somebody else's life is a loving thing to do. The world does not, cannot construe it that way. Because the world says, if you love me... This is the probably the biggest lie today that many people are being are subtly in their heart, not realizing that they're accepting it. But the lie is this: If you love me, you will affirm me. If you love me, you will affirm me. And it's not true. The Bible says you can love somebody. In fact, the Bible says if somebody is sinning, the greatest way to love them is to not affirm them. But to say, look, I, I will not affirm your sin. I love you. Because whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering has saved his soul from death. Yes. 
and covered a multitude of sins. If you love somebody in their sin, you will not affirm them in their sin, but you will plead with them that they might turn from it and come to Jesus and be saved. And so the final step before the congregation is kind of the climactic moment. That's what we always think about when we think about church discipline. But really, that's going to be the very final step in a relatively few number of cases where it's going to get to that point. And the ultimate goal is restoration. But it says, if the person refuses even to listen to the church, you treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. And essentially what he means by that is that you, you treat them as no longer part of the community of faith because they're not. Okay, It's excluding them from the fellowship. The traditional term is excommunication. Now, now we're not Catholic. We don't, we don't think that we have, you know, we're not saying that they're damned. But what we are saying is that at this point, because we've gone through the whole process and at no point have you showed signs of repentance, then at that point, what the church is saying collectively is just saying, you are giving us zero evidence to believe that you are truly a Christian. And so from this point forward, we're going to treat you as an unbeliever. And what do you do with an unbeliever? Well, you love them. You share the gospel with them. You point them to Jesus. Okay? But there's still a distinction there. They're not a part of the community of faith. And we can't treat them that way. And so we don't treat them like everything's just okay because it's not. It's not just business as usual. They're no longer a part of the fellowship of faith. You know, in our church constitution, we have a statement where we, as a church, um, have this process where, uh, where we have committed to be obedient to Christ in this regard. This is what it says in, Constit- in our constitution, Article 6, Section 3. Should a member become an offense to the church and to its good name by reason of immoral or unchristian conduct or by persistent breach of the church covenant or non-support of the church, the church may terminate his or her membership by a three-fourth vote of eligible members present in voting, but only after due notice and hearing and after faithful efforts have been made to bring such member to repentance and amendment. What is that? It's Matthew 18. It's Matthew 18. It is going after the wandering sheep. That's what it is. It's going after the wandering sheep. No, it's not, it's not easy. Yes, it is frowned upon in culture. But it's what Christ has called us to do. So it doesn't really matter what other people think about it. It only matters what Christ thinks about it. And you know what the crazy thing is? Is the same people who say, well, so-and-so did that, and they're a member of such-and-such church, are the same people who, if they're on the church roll and we try to take them off, they'll say, oh, you're such judgmental people. <laughs> We've got to please Christ. So number one, the process. Number two, the prerogative. The prerogative. Um, These words we address very briefly in Matthew 16, and they're just as difficult 
now in Matthew 18. It says, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So what does this mean in relation to church discipline? As I mentioned, he used the same language in Matthew 16 about binding and loosing with regard to Peter when he told Peter that on this rock I will build my church. He used the same language there, and now he's using it in reference to to the, the church, capital C. Okay? Uh, the difficulty in interpretation of this passage is how to translate it because it's a very rare and difficult Greek construction and there's debates about how this works within the Greek language. So it says, truly I say to you, whatever you bound on, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So that, uh, you, any English teachers listening to this is about to be, be so happy. And that simple future, okay, will be loosed in heaven, will be bound in heaven, will be loosed in heaven. That, that translation is simple future, Okay. But the Greek construction in the most literal sense is a, it's a future perfect. And what that means is it could be translated, whatever, whatever is bound on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever is loosed on, uh, loose, uh, loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Future perfect. But see, even that sounds strange in English because we don't normally talk that way. Shall have been bound shall have been loosed. We, don't, we, don't, we almost never speak that way. So the question is, what, is that, what does it even mean? My take is to just say that the, the, the best way to take it is um, kind of a, a, just a very general sense uh, to mean this. And I'm following D.A. Carson here, who's a, a biblical scholar. He says, whatever you bind on earth stands bound in heaven. Just a, a, just a general statement, okay? Whatever you bind on earth stands bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth stands loosed in heaven, okay? So what do, what do I take Jesus to mean by this? Well, this is what I take him to mean. I don't, I don't think he's saying that, that God is... That we make the decision and God ratifies that decision. I think it's, I think it's the other way around, okay? I think, what, I think what Jesus is saying is that he's going to be in the midst of his people such that the decision of the people, when sought in the Lord and by faith and in submission to his word, the decision of the people is, is, is the decision of the church is rendering the decision that, ha, that is standing in heaven. Amen. So in other words, God is in fact entrusting to his church what we might call the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That is that the church, by proxy, by the authority of Christ, Christ has entrusted his church with the responsibility and the decision-making ability and process and wisdom to make judgments about who and who is not within the community of faith. That's a weighty responsibility. That's a heavy responsibility, but I think it's quite clear that that's what Jesus is saying, which I believe is confirmed by the fact that when he says, 
For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Right? Now, lots of people take that verse about prayer, and I think it's true that when we pray in two or three, God is there. But actually, that's not what the verse is talking about. The, the context of this verse is actually what is church discipline, right? So when he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, the two or three goes back, harkens back to the two or three when it says, if he doesn't listen to you, carry two or three along with you. So the point is that where two, where two or three are present in the spirit of God, rendering decision about, the, about who is and isn't within the community of faith, Jesus is saying, I'm there with them. As part of that decision-making process. Giving them wisdom and understanding and grace to take courage and to do what is right in these situations. I I think that's what it means. And so whatever verdict they come to in good faith, humility, and submission to the scripture, it is not merely the church rendering that verdict, but it is Jesus rendering that verdict through the church. And that's a very heavy and weighty thing. Very heavy and weighty thing. It's not to be taken lightly. And the final thing to untangle is what does he mean then when he brings prayer into this? He says, I say again to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. What does that mean in the context of church discipline? What are we, what are we asking for in the context of church discipline. Well, I'm not 100% sure, to be honest with you. But there is a passage that is about equally difficult, so it's kind of risky interpreting it with it, but I'm going to give it a shot. There's a, there's a passage in Timothy where Paul says this. 1 Timothy 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, <clears throat> in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. What in the world does it mean to hand somebody over to Satan? Well, it's a similar context as it is in Matthew 18, because Paul is talking about the issue of church discipline, of people who have made shipwreck of their faith. And what has Paul done here? Well, he says he's handed them over to Satan. What does that mean? Well, I think it means this. I think it means that he's basically saying, he's, he's basically handing them over to God and saying, God, I release this person in a sense, if you think about it. He's almost like saying, God, Take away your care and protection from this person so that they'll see the error that they've made. That's heavy. But let me tell you something. Some of you in this room, I know for a fact, can testify to this. God had to take you to rock bottom before you realized what you were doing with your life. And you'll stand here and you would say, behind this pulpit, you would say, that's the best thing that ever happened to me. And sometimes, sometimes that's what we have to do. If people refuse to listen to other people who love them, 
when they're, when they're disobeying God and going down a path that leads to destruction and we've warned them and we've tried to help them but they just refuse, then sometimes you just have to hand them up and hand them over. And pray that God lets them see the error of their ways or as Paul said, that they might learn not to blaspheme. So what we've talking about this morning, church discipline, it's a heavy it's a weighty thing. It starts privately, and only then does it begin to expand. But the biggest point, the main point of all, is this is how we find wandering sheep. This is how Jesus finds wandering sheep. So if we love people, it's what we got to do. Amen. And I just want to say to somebody listening this morning, we don't want it to go, we don't want this to happen. We don't want this to happen. We don't want God to have to take you to rock bottom before you see that you need him. Now, he'll do it. And if we have to, we'll pray that he'll do it. But we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. We would rather you see your need of him today, his greatness and his mercy today. And that you can be saved and forgiven today and be spared a lot of pain and a lot of heartache and a lot of sorrow from the bad decisions that you're making. And so that's, in the end, what it's about. So as I close this morning, that is the invitation. That is the invitation of Christ. That is the invitation of Christ. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you turn from your sins, believe in him who died, who rose again, who's coming back one day. Trust in him. Follow him. He will forgive you of all of your sins. He will welcome you into the family of God. You can become part of this community of faith. You can be holy as he is holy. You can be separate from the world. It'll make us different. It makes us distinct. It doesn't make life easy, but it means we belong to God and God belongs to us. And there's nothing in the world that's better than that. And it's certainly better than hitting rock bottom before you see that you need Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. So come today as the Lord is speaking. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth. Thank you, Lord that in various times and in various ways you came after all of us God when we were wandering from you and I, I personally I thank you for that Lord I thank you for my mom who took me to church I thank you for the, the church members who loved us I thank you for the preachers who preached the gospel and told me I needed to repent of my sins as long as as regardless of how long I didn't listen to them I thank you that you put these people in my life I thank you that you put people in my life God to tell me I was wrong and I pray this morning that that if there's somebody, God listening, that needs you, I pray that they would hear your call, the Spirit's call this morning. I pray that they would not hold back from you.
but would repent, would believe, would trust, would surrender. And know the joy and the hope and the peace and the glory that's only found in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.